0: Well, good morning. Uh, today we're going to be looking through 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You can turn your Bibles with me. to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. And uh, as you're turning there, today's passage, it breaks into two main sections. The first section being Paul's abundant love for the Corinthian church. And that's really seen in verses 1 through 5. And the second topic we'll be discussing is how... We should restore a repentant believer, which is the last, um, the last few verses. The Corinthian church, they had many sinful issues going on there. They had probably one of the more serious issues was a man who was involved in an incestuous relationship. This man was having sex with his father's wife. This was a believer who's actively living in sin, a sin that's so obscene that most Gentiles or most unbelievers wouldn't even dare to think about doing, let alone actually do. And we know that this wasn't just a hidden sin, it was well known. It actually tells us uh, in 1 Corinthians 5 that it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, for a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. The Corinthian church, they knew about this happening. They were um, aware of it happening. And yet, rather than take action, rather than uh, be mournful, and rather than actually um, be grieved by this sin, they were proud of themselves for how tolerant they were, how liberal, how willing they were to have this sin in their midst. Um, Daniel drove by this sign the other day about uh, a church had on their billboard outside saying, you know, we accept all all the people that other churches reject. Basically, the idea being that we'll take anybody, um, whether they've been put out of fellowship, whether they've uh, lived in an active lifestyle of sin, no matter what, we'll take them. We'll be accepting. We're going to be tolerant of these things. And that's really the, the, the case of many churches today, tolerant of all kinds of sins. And the question is, who's going to stand up? Who's going to be the one who says, no, this is not right. We have to do something about this. We cannot allow a sinner to live in blatant sin. And for the Corinthian church, the one who stood in the way, the one who stood up for sin against it, is Paul. And he wrote them a letter in 1 Corinthians to rebuke them for their approval, for their tolerance of sin. Paul tells them to deliver such a one to the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. And that means basically that Satan, he's in control of, uh, the whole world's under his control. So when we say that we're delivering someone um, to the destruction of the flesh, we're basically replacing them, um, or we're placing them in Satan's domain where they may, f- uh, may experience some form of physical suffering, but that physical suffering is meant to ultimately break them of their sin, make them realize that this is not right, this is not acceptable, this is, um, needs to be repented of. Ultimately, we're not wanting to see the brother punished or see them suffering, but we want to see them repent of that sin that they've committed and then ultimately be restored. And Paul, he, he desperately wanted to see the Corinthians, as we heard about with Matt last week, but at the same time, he's writing them a, a harsh letter. This is a rebuke to a church. How are they going to accept this? Are they going to listen to his rebuke? Are they going to actually follow through with what he says or are they going to say forget it no way are we listening to that kind of person so it's a fearful thing for him because he's just uncertain as to how this is going to be received by them but we fast forward we find out that Titus comes back he gives them good news that not only did they receive your letter they listened to it and they applied uh, your rebuke to action and now this brother has been put out of fellowship and now Paul is joyful because they were obedient, they followed through with what he has said. But in this first section that we look at in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul he's reflecting on what was going through his mind, what emotions was he feeling as he was writing that original rebuke to them in 1 Corinthians 5. And we read about it here in this first section, and if you're following on your notes, it's it's talking about Paul's abundant love for the Corinthian church. Paul's abundant love for the Corinthians church. We'll start by reading in verse 1. But I determined within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came to you I should have sorrow over those whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. As you read through this, you just see Paul's love for this church. As he's writing it, his, his love for them just oozes out of the page. You can see Um, originally he was thinking about how are they going to take this uh, rebuke and it makes him sorrow it says uh, he was sorrowful four times he thinks about I really want to have joy and and, uh, have a great time with these believers and yet I'm thinking about this rebuke causing a lack of joy Uh, he thinks about um, the much affliction it says and out of anguish of heart he wrote to them And ultimately, it says at the end that his motive for it was that he wrote it to show his abundant love for them. This really shows just how much Paul loved him. If you think of a parent, they don't want to discipline their child. They think of, obviously, uh, they need to discipline their child because that will bring about repentance. But in the initial phases, they're sorrowful because they know that this is going to hurt the child. This is not going to be a, a joyful time with me and him. And I'm going to be sorrowful because I have to discipline them. And Paul, he knew this. He was thinking through all these issues and yet he knew still that even though it may cause a sorrow initially, the end result will be joy. And so we find out that, like I said before, Titus delivers good news. They've listened. The man has repented now. And now the question is, what do we do now that the man's repented of his sin? As a church, what is is the next step for us? And this really brings us to our second point in our outline. It's how should we restore a repentant believer? How should we restore a repentant believer? And this is what we'll focus the bulk of our message on. It's found in verses 6 through 11. It says in verse 6, This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." The rest of the message is really about how to restore a repentant believer. And in answering uh, that question, we have three major questions surrounding church discipline. The first one being what can we do before church discipline? The second one being what must we do during church discipline? And the last one being, How should we restore a believer after he repents? I want you to imagine um, you have a friend who drives recklessly and some of you may already have a friend in mind but let's just imagine that you have a friend who drives recklessly He constantly makes unsafe lane changes he's constantly driving 25 miles over the speed limit but you don't know this yet you've never driven with him personally and one day he says I'm gonna take you out to dinner let's go out to Olive Garden Go there, he picks you up at 6 o'clock, you get on the road, he's uh, in rush hour traffic, cutting people off, making near, uh, near dodges, he almost sideswipes someone. He runs through at least three or four red lights, nearly hitting two or three pedestrians on the way. Uh, you're, you're, you're patting him on the shoulder saying, stop this, what are you doing? You're going to kill both of us, why are you acting this way? And he's like, oh, come on, this is not the worst of it, you should have seen me yesterday. And you're like, stop, seriously, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be driving with you if it's like this. And he just laughs it off. You end up going to dinner. He drives you home. The same experience happens. And you're fearful that that may have been your last, uh, your last car ride of your life. And you uh, are at a party the next day talking with uh, some of the friends who also know this guy. And, and you're saying, did you know that he drives like this? Like, I was trying to tell him that. This is ridiculous. I, my heart almost stopped multiple times. We almost hit three people. Uh, I'm surprised that we didn't get pulled over. There's people honking all the time. How is it possible that he drives like this? And they're like, yeah, you know, we had the same issue. We were driving with him and he acts the same way. And uh, you say, you know what, this is, it can't go on like this anymore. We have to talk to him. So you bring your friends along with you in a loving manner, hoping that he'll hear you out, hoping that he'll want to change his ways. And you meet with him, you appeal to him, please stop driving like this. You're not only going to hurt yourself, you're going to hurt someone else. If not, you know, worse, kill yourself. And we don't want to see that happen to you. You remind him of specific incidents, how you cut that person off and how you almost hit that pedestrian. And you appeal to him in this way and he he refuses to listen. And in this situation, he ignores all of your uh, counsel. But uh, in this case, you may not be able to get any farther with him. But the very next day, as he's driving to work, he's commuting uh, to work at 8 o'clock. He tries to to squeeze by this car, and the last second, he clips a car, and then he causes a four-car accident that leaves some people in the hospital. And he ultimately, everyone who was at that and all the witnesses around come and point the finger at him and say, you're responsible for this person. This person is now injured. This person crashed. You've caused this. The CHP officer is saying that you are at fault. Ultimately, the people press charges. This man's then brought into, uh, before a court system. The judge finds him guilty and says, you know what, based on how reckless you were in that situation, I'm actually going to sentence you to six months in jail. He goes to six months in jail, and in that six months, he then realizes, wow, I did not realize how severe my uh, reckless behavior was. I didn't realize the cost it would have had on me, on society, on other people. I didn't realize that. He ends up repenting for the way he was acting. He ends up being a changed man. And when he finally gets out, he vows to never do it again. And, and he drives safely uh, from that point on. And um, as, a, as a person uh, in the story, your friend, he, he was reckless in his behavior. And you were trying to stop him from facing more serious consequences. You didn't want him to go down that path. You knew beforehand that if you continue this way, it was going to end up poorly for him. And in the same way, there are things that we can do before church discipline uh, in order to prevent uh, further consequences, in order to prevent um, further um, straying away from the Lord. Most church discipline actually comes far, uh, far after preventative measures have been implemented. There are things that, we can't, that have been done, like rebuke, like loving appeals, exhortation, teaching. All these things come long before being put out of fellowship happens. So our question is, what can we do before church discipline? Well, the first thing we can do is we can rebuke the believer for their sins. And that will be the next point in your outline. We can rebuke the believer for their sins. Luke 17.3 um, tells us, If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. The idea being that you initially, when your friend was not following you, you rebuked him, you told him, this is not the way to go. You're going to harm yourself. Bring it before him. The second thing we can do, we can encourage believers to turn back to the Lord. James gives us this command. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You're encouraging him. Say, "Hey, I see where you're going. I don't want you to end this way. I've seen other people end the same way. Come back. Come back to the Lord." Encouraging him along to follow the Lord. The third thing is that we would uh, we can follow the proper biblical pattern. Follow the proper biblical pattern. In this story, your friend, he didn't listen to your rebuke. So then you ended up bringing others along with you in hopes that he would also listen to them. And um, this is actually exactly how Jesus taught us to approach um, uh, an issue. He tells us more about this on how to deal with a sinning brother in Matthew 18, where he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. So he has, in the word, the Lord gives us a step-by-step way of how to approach in a godly manner, um, issues that we face in life. And the first thing is that if a brother has sinned against you, talk with him face-to-face, just the two of you, and hope that you can have the brother realize the error of his way and then repent from it. That's, that should be as far as it goes. But if he's unwilling to listen with just a face-to-face conversation, then you move on to step two, which is bring one or two others along with you that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. This will allow for other godly men to have their input, to have the facts straightened. And hopefully at that point, the brother would then realize their need uh, for repentance and that they were not following uh, a godly uh, godly way. And if that still doesn't bring about repentance, then the Lord says to bring bring the issue before the local church with the hopes that the uh, elders and those in in authority at that time will then talk with the brother, see both sides, and uh, hopefully at that point the brother will then realize, you know, I was in the wrong. I should not have been doing that. I am sorry before the Lord, and I'm sorry before you, and then ultimately be restored. But if he will still not hear you, then at that point it says that we need to put him out of fellowship until he demonstrates genuine repentance. That's the biblical pattern that we're to follow. And these patterns uh, show us all, or these passages show us all of the ways that we're supposed to discipline, uh, ways we're supposed to deal with the sin before church discipline. But once a brother's unrepentant, once he's unwilling to hear you out, then what do we do? Well, that's when we reach our next question of what can we do during church discipline? What can we do during church discipline? Well, the first thing is something that we're not supposed to do. We are not to associate with a person under church discipline. We're not to associate with them. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us this very plainly. Paul is saying, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. This means that the brother is to be put out of fellowship, we're not to have company with them. And not only that, it says you're not even supposed to eat with a person. So if a brother goes out of fellowship, don't invite them over to your house to have lunch. Don't try and meet with them up on the side to discuss what happened, to try and understand the situation more. Don't hang out with them and try and catch up on life, even if it's not about the issue. Don't try and go over and console him. People from other churches, they shouldn't interfere with church discipline that's happening. They should allow this to be a time where the sinning brother is alone before the Lord realizing his sin to a point where he can be uh, totally uh, dependent on the Lord and realizing that this is what I did was wrong. The way I was acting was wrong. Because if we don't allow for that to happen, we're going to be hindering him from seeing his need to repent. And ultimately the punishment by the church leaders is going to be neglected. It's going to be made ineffective because we're not dealing with it the right way, the the way the Lord uh, implemented it to be. The main goal of discipline is to bring about genuine repentance. Discipline is not supposed to be punitive. It's not supposed to be a time where we just like to punish someone. Ultimately, it's a restorative process. It's always been that way. The Lord's purpose has always been that way for discipline. And we know that because we not only read about it in our passage today, but we also read about it in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, where it says that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, meaning that the disciplined person may be disciplined in this life by the Lord, but there's no thought of eternal damnation. There's no thought of a perpetual punishment by this man. Rather, that he'll be saved in the day of the Lord. The second thing we can do during church discipline is we can pray for this believer we can pray for the person under church discipline. Paul tells us, or um, I'm sorry, uh, John tells us in 1 John 5, now this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's the Lord's plan, it's the Lord's idea and hope that the brother will realize the sin to be genuinely repented and then to be restored to fellowship with the church and with him. And if we pray with that mindset, with that goal in mind to see that brother restored, then we're praying according to his will. The third thing we can do is we, can pr- uh, we must take action in order to clear our name. And what I mean by that, we're clearing our church's name from any association with the sin of that brother under discipline. Uh, Paul talks about this. Uh, we'll read about this later in, uh, in our studies. Uh, in the coming weeks. But in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, For I observed this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. And ultimately, the Corinthians took to heart the rebuke that Paul gave them. He was encouraged to hear that they had followed through, they had disciplined this man. And in doing so, when a church disciplines this unrepentant believer, and by distancing themselves from that sin, they are, in effect, clearing their name. And that really brings us to our final point of uh, how we should restore a believer after he repents. And this is really the the main emphasis of this passage is how we should restore a believer after he repents. The first thing we want to do is a a believer comes before us, he says, I am repentant for what I have done. Now we need to verify that he is genuinely repented of his sin, that he has forsaken his sin. Isaiah 55.7 says, Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. If the brother is caught in an incestuous relationship where he's sleeping with his father's wife, you would expect that the very first thing he would do to demonstrate genuine repentance would be to cut off that relationship. You cannot say I am repentant, I truly am sorrowful, I truly um, want to be made right with the Lord, and yet still continue to live an active life of sin. You just can't have both. It's one or the other. So you'd expect the very first thing to do is to cut off that sin. The Bible makes it clear in other areas too that if a man was a thief, the Bible says, let him who stole, steal no more. You think back to the adulterous woman. Jesus said to her, go and sin no more. It's an expectance that whatever the sin is, there has to be put an end to it. You cannot continue on in this lifestyle. Secondly, uh, you would... You should expect to see humility before God from this repentant believer. James seven ten tells us, uh, and gives us a really good example of how we can tell uh, where the man stands before the Lord. It says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. That humility, that's what you would expect in a brother. A humbleness, not coming back and being restored with a, a prideful and arrogant manner, but rather be humble before the Lord. And it would be demonstrated by his submission to God, by him resisting the temptations of the devil that's being thrown before him. You'd be seeing him drawing near to the Lord in prayer. You would expect to see him cleansing himself from every association, like we said, like breaking off that sin. You would expect him to see him have a mourning in his heart like David did after Nathan the prophet rebuked him for his sin. And ultimately a humbling of himself before the Lord who will then ultimately exalt him in due time. So if we receive a believer back, who if we see a believer who is repented, he's genuinely repented, he has forsaken these ways, he's showing humility before the Lord, then we bring him to a third point, which is we forgive the repentant believer publicly. Forgive the repentant believer publicly. This is really the final phase and the most joyous phase of discipline. This is the end result that the Lord had intended for discipline. It's a, have a believer be forgiven and reconciled. 2 uh, Corinthians 2, 6, picking up in our passage again, tells us that discipline must come to an end. Discipline must come to an end. It says that this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. You have the believer he was put out of fellowship. He realized his sin. He then demonstrated genuine repentance and now he is ready to be restored. And in light of this, Paul tells them that the discipline that you implemented has accomplished its purpose. There's no longer a need to continue on with discipline. It's not meant to be a lifelong thing. It's fulfilled its purpose. Now it's time to restore that brother into fellowship. Do you remember that story I was saying earlier about your friend who was driving recklessly, who was cutting off people. You brought uh, that matter to him in the car when you were talking to him. You said, hey, this is not, this is not right. This is not lawful. You shouldn't continue on in this way. You're going to hurt yourself. going to hurt someone else. You rebuked him. He didn't listen. You then brought two or three more with you. Again, he did not listen. He then caused the crash. He was brought to jail, served his six months, and was restored man back into society. But let's just say that Suppose the judge, uh, before his six months was up, decided to have a final meeting with him um, to talk with him. And as he appears before the court, the judge says to him, you know what, as I was thinking these past few months and reviewing your case, I, I just could not sleep at night. I was, I was tossing and turning, and even though you say that you're a changed man, even though uh, others say that they see these changes in you, I just cannot let you go after six months. I've decided that I'm extending this punishment for 10 more years because of the severity of what you did, because of the cause of uh, accidents you could have resulted in, because of the injuries you um, could have resulted in, because of how severe of a uh, pileup that was. I just, I don't want you back on the streets, and in that case, I'm gonna show you no more mercy. I'm tacking on those 10 more years. And so the tax. The judge tacks on 10 more years. And imagine your friend, he at this point is just overwhelmed with sorrow. He feels hopeless. He feels like I've served my time. I'm genuinely sorry for what I've done. I vowed I would never do this again. I, I want to be restored to society. I just don't know what more I can say or do. And you would think that this feels like an extreme punishment by this judge. And in similar manners, the Corinthians, they were extremists in some ways. Initially, they were so proud of themselves, how liberal, how open they were to accepting everyone. We're not going to punish them. It's okay. Then Paul rebukes them. They then listen to Paul, and they put them in out of fellowship. And when the man finally demonstrates genuine repentance, some of them are like, I don't know. I don't know if I should bring him back into fellowship. I think he belongs still under church discipline which is just as wrong as leaving him uh, without discipline. So Paul tells him, no, that's not the way it should be. There's three things you have to do. uh, Aside from bringing, um, bringing this discipline to an end, you have to then forgive him. You have to then comfort him and reaffirm your love for him. And those are your next three points. Forgive him, comfort him, and reaffirm your love for him. And we read about these ideas that Paul says to the Corinthian believers in verses 7 through 8. It says, So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest, perhaps, such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Forgive him. This is uh, uh, when a believer confesses his sin, he is shown mercy before the Lord. The Lord forgives him, and he restores him to fellowship. Now, the next step is that if the Lord is willing to forgive a believer who has repented, how much more so should the church then be willing to then bring that person back into fellowship and forgive them? Forgiveness may be the hardest part of this whole passage. I mean, if you think about it, put your put yourself in the shoe at uh, the shoes of this man or of, of this church. You've known about this man. He's associated with you for probably years. And now it comes forth that he has slept with his father's wife. I mean, that's probably one of the most vile and hurtful actions you can hear about in in a person. And you think to yourself, who would have been hurt by this? Well, you think of, uh, obviously, the father. You think of uh, close family members, extended family members. You think of close friends, even extended friends who knew of friends of friends. It's, it's hard. People will take sides. Some people will want to go towards the offended party. Some people will go towards the offender. It's really a time where it can be causing divisions. It can cause uh, broken relationships. It can cause bitterness, hatred. All these things are very real emotions that people experience um, in the midst of a situation like this. And some people, they feel as though they're incapable of forgiveness. They feel like there's no way I could forgive someone who ever did something like that. It's unforgivable. And forgiveness is not easy. I'm not trying to say it's easy. But it is a necessary part of uh, discipline to forgive that brother after. And once that believer has repented, we no longer hold on to their sins. We don't see them every time and think about that sin and say, "Ah, I remember what you did two years ago. I'm not over that yet. No, once the brother has been repented of his sin... We forgive them. We're not to be like that judge who just holds it over and says, I don't care how sorry you are. I'm not forgiving you. No, we forgive them. Matthew, uh, well, you might ask, then why, why do we have to forgive this person? Why? Matthew tells us, uh, the Lord is saying here that, for if, I, for if you forgive men of their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses... Neither will your father forgive yours or your trespasses. Does God hold that same unforgiving attitude that you hold towards that brother who sinned? Does he continually hold sin over your head and remind you every single day look what you did two years ago, David? Look what you did last night? Look what you did six days ago? Does he hold it over our head like that? Does he half heartedly forgive you? No, he does not. In fact, If we read about, and this is probably one of the very first verses most people memorize, is 1 John 1.9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us all of our sins, and he completely removes it as far as the east is from the west. So there's no remembrance of it in his mind any longer. But how can we expect to receive forgiveness from the Lord when we still hold on to sin that a brother's done or committed against us? If the brother's genuinely repentant, then we forgive him as the Lord has forgiven us of our sins. Even the disciples, though, they had difficulty wrapping their minds around this concept. You have an account of them asking the Lord, how many times do I have to forgive a brother who sins against me? And in Matthew 18, the Lord gives an answer. It says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. The idea is not 490 times and and then you stop forgiving them. The idea is that we infinitely forgive that brother who sins against us. No matter how many times he has harmed us, no matter how many times he has offended us, we're commanded to forgive that brother. And in light of this, if the Lord commands the Corinthian believers to forgive a man who's committed such a heinous crime, such a disgusting sin that you wouldn't even fathom happening anywhere, and he still says, Forgive that brother then how much more so should we be able to forgive the small day-to-day offenses that we have with our brothers and sisters? I want you to honestly think in your own life. Are there people who have sinned against you who you have not yet forgiven? Or worse, are there people in your life who you're just unwilling to forgive? No matter what they've done to you, forgive them. Don't store up bitterness. Don't store up resentment towards them. Don't hold it over their head. Forgive them just as the Lord has forgiven you. So once we've forgiven a brother, we can then comfort him. We seek to be an encouragement in his life. We want to build him up to see him then going on strong again for the Lord. This may be the final step in church discipline, but it's not the final step in his Christian walk. This is a time when God can and does use those who repent of their sins in a mighty way. Be a comforter in him so that he may go on strong for the Lord. And then reaffirm your love for him. Demonstrate that you love him. Receive that believer back in fellowship with joy. This is the part of church discipline that we don't normally see. Most people they end up leaving the church altogether. They'll walk away with hatred towards the leaders, towards certain brothers or sisters. They'll insist that I was right and they were wrong. They'll insist that, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is just not the church for me, or whatever it may be. Some people just leave the faith altogether. But now, what a joy to finally see a brother admit that, you know what, I was wrong. I sinned before the Lord. I didn't listen initially when the people tried to talk with me, but now, when I've been put out of fellowship, I realize that God truly is trying to get a hold of me, and that I have sinned before Him. I have confessed my sins. I'm genuinely repentant. I'm humbled before Him, and now I am ready to be restored. Think back. This just reminds us of uh, the prodigal son as he left home, and it took him a while, but he finally realized that it was better at his father's home. That. His father had everything for him. And we read about, really, the the main focus of this, though, is is in Luke 15, we talk about the father's attitude in bringing him um, back. And we read about this, we see that in verse 22, but the father said to his servant, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring out the fattened calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry for my son, which was dead and... For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. That is the kind of joyous celebration we should have when a believer comes back. That's the kind of celebration that the Lord has when a believer um, returns to him. In the same way, this is a time of joy, celebration, reminding that brother how precious they are to you and to the church Showing them how much you care about them and encouraging them. That is the picture we should receive at the end of discipline. We should imitate the Lord's response in that and having that joy for that brother as they come back to fellowship. Paul writes again in verse 9, For this is the end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. As Paul wrote that letter, he wondered if, If the Corinthians would uh, follow through with what he had said. And he was pleasantly surprised when he found out they not only took to heart what he said, he then disciplined him. Now the brother is repented. Now will they restore that brother to fellowship? And Paul says in verse 10, "'To whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ.'" And what Paul is saying here is that he's in fellowship with the Corinthians. That he's not asking them to do anything he's not willing to do. He says, I am willing to forgive this brother if you are also willing. He's saying that I too forgive this brother. Now bring him back into fellowship. See, this is, if you look at it from a a step away for a second and just look at the idea of discipline, this is the ultimate goal intended by the Lord. To see a man genuinely repented before the Lord and then restored into the body of believers and before the Lord. And why does the Lord do this? Why? Discipline can be painful. Why, does, why would he want to do that? Ultimately, it's because his motive still is his love for us. Otherwise, he wouldn't do it. He loves us. That's why he disciplines us. He, wants, he, he loves us so much that he's not going to allow us to get away with sinful behavior. He wants to correct our ways so that we may be more like him. That's the ultimate purpose, that God's intended by it. And we, uh, we reach um, an issue of what happens if we don't restore this brother to fellowship quickly? Um, and if we don't, um, there, isn't, there is a potential error that could happen. Um, and our final point is that we restore a brother to fellowship because we don't want to allow Satan to take advantage of us. If we withhold forgiveness, if we withhold fellowship, this brother is going to be totally discouraged. He's going to feel as though he never truly can be forgiven before the Lord. He's going to be swallowed up with sorrow. And Satan would love to come in at this moment and discourage this brother to the point where he no longer feels like he's affected for the Lord. We read about this in verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us for we're not ignorant of his devices. Satan will always make us um, feel incapable of freedom in, in areas of sin. He makes us want to feel uh, discouraged, he'll, he'll want to remind us of our failures, or downfalls. He loves to pull us away from the truth of God and feed us lies. And a believer is going to feel an anguish if he's not truly given um, this forgiveness even though he truly is repentant. He's going to be hindered in his walk and he'll no longer feel as though um, he has the support of the believers around him. So we forgive him. And we bring him back into fellowship. And when we forgive and restore this repentant believer, we not only defend ourselves from the further attacks of Satan and discouragement, uh, we also encourage that brother again in the Lord. So when we forgive And bring him back into fellowship. The entire church is brought back onto track. That believer is now restored to a proper state in the church. And forgiveness has now been administered. And all is right now in the church. That's the ultimate intention of discipline. And that is how we restore a repentant believer. Let's just pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your wonderful purpose, Lord. We know that you discipline us because you love us, Lord. And we know that You have an end result in in mind to see us restored to you, Lord. You want to see us become more like you, Lord, so you discipline us and you you, uh, seek to see uh, humility from us and you seek to see genuine repentance. And Lord, um, what an awesome experience it is to see a brother realize that and to then be restored to fellowship. Lord, we just pray that if there's anyone um, that we haven't forgiven of sins, if there's anyone that we hold grudges against, Lord, that we would forgive them and uh, restore them uh, to proper fellowship. Lord, I just pray that um, we would just take to heart the truths of your word this morning, and we would apply it to our lives in the coming days, coming years. And Lord, I just thank you for the truth of your word and seeing how much you love us. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.